Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Chapter 8, The Potions Master. There, look. Where? Next to the tall kid with the red hair. Wearing the glasses? Did you see his face? Did you see his scar? I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Matt Potts. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Vanessa, this week we're reading The Potions Master through the theme of belonging. And I have a story about belonging that I want to tell. So I grew up in Western Michigan, and I was a child in the 80s, and I also uh, am Japanese. My mom is from Japan. And I got to tell you, that was not an easy time to be Japanese in that part of the world, because in the 1980s, Toyota was overtaking General Motors and Ford as the largest automobile manufacturer in the world. And not just the auto industry. I remember like the we had neighbors down the street who worked for Caterpillar, you know, the construction equipment company. And I remember him complaining about Kubota construction machinery and how the Japanese were ruining the industry and ruining his livelihood and so forth. So this was a difficult time to be Japanese. And I always felt very, um, I felt like I didn't quite belong. Like the place where I grew up had a lot of Dutch people. So there are a lot of like very tall, pale, blonde people. And I am not pale and blonde. And so like it, physically and also culturally, I felt very different. And I anticipated one day like going to Japan to live. I had traveled to Japan with family before, but I anticipated going to Japan to live and feeling like when I arrived in Japan to live there, I would acquire some sense of belonging, a kind of belonging that I didn't have in West Michigan growing up. So I did move to Japan eventually after college. I was in the Navy for a while there. And what I found when I 
showed up in Japan is that I might as well have been pale and blonde haired because to everyone in Japan, I was as American as apple pie. I, you know, I don't speak Japanese. I'm half European by ancestry. And so these were the features that read more obviously to the people around me. And culturally, I was far more American than Japanese, having grown up in America. So I didn't find that sense of belonging in Japan. And I started just feeling kind of lost. It was also a kind of complicated time for me personally for lots of reasons that are not part of the story. Maybe we'll talk about in future stories. But this is the, the moment, kind of the climax of the story that I want to get to. One of the things I was doing is I felt very lonely. I would go to these Zen temples in this ancient city called Kamakura, which is not very far from where I lived. And there was this one temple called uh, Kenchoji. And it's this beautiful temple, and it has this path that goes up into the mountains, and from the mountains you can overlook the bay, and it's just a, a great place where I would go and wander around when I was feeling especially lonely. And I remember one Saturday morning, I went to Kenchoji, and it was right when it first opened up, so it was early. I took the early train. There was nobody else walking around. There was dew on the grass. It was kind of overcast day, and I was walking through the temple, and I wanted to walk up to the top of this hill, this mountain, to overlook the, the water. And as I was walking, for the first time since I'd been there, I saw like the Zen priest walking toward me. And he was like the stereotype of a Zen priest, shaved head, had robes on. And as we were approaching each other, he was walking out as I was walking in. He looked up at me and he had this huge smile on his face and said like with this super robust and hearty voice, Ohayou gozaimasu, which is good morning in Japanese. And I immediately felt like so connected to him. I felt like it was such like a friendly and warm greeting. And, you know, wandering around Japan in my other travels, going into convenience stores or whatever, saying good morning to folks, most of the time the Japanese person who was receiving my greeting would either respond with an embarrassed smile or they would try to say good morning in English to me. And I don't have any illusion that this Zen priest thought I spoke Japanese. I just think that he didn't care. He was just like, he was just saying welcome in whatever words came out of his mouth. And it was so warm and so welcoming. I felt more welcome and belonging in that moment just from him saying, oh, hell goes I must to me as I walked into to his temple. And so it just made me think about like what counts as belonging. I think I want to presume that belonging means something about sharing identity. But maybe that's just the wrong way to think about belonging, that belonging has more to do with welcoming others, right? It has more to do with like, of course we're different. Why would we be different? That's not what makes us welcome each other. We welcome each other because we welcome each other. And in that moment with this man who's very, very different than me, different in age, different in circumstance, different in life, it was just because he said good morning in his own language, which I can't even understand, with a robust and hearty and obviously heartfelt kind of emotion behind it, that made me feel like I belonged. Matt, that was such a beautiful story. And I love that definition of belonging being about welcoming. I took a seminar during my clinical pastoral education about how to welcome people. And I walked into this seminar being like, this is so dumb. You say hello. And this community organizer was like, welcoming people to your meeting is the most important part of the meeting. And making people feel welcome is the most important part. It does not matter what you say after that, essentially. And it blew my mind. And so I love this idea of welcoming as belonging. Can I tell you another quick little story? Yes. Colette was foisted into a children's minister role at a church I once worked at, and she's not trained as a children's minister. She just kind of took up the role. Um, and she ended up doing, you know, amazing with it, wrote a book, did wonderful things. But the first day that all the children arrived, she started with a prayer, and she realized in that moment that she had to pray with these children, had never prayed publicly or in front of people before. And so she just, she just said, 
thank you, God, for Allison, for Jim, for Tony, for Sally, and just went around the room and said everyone's name and looked at them as she said their their names. And that was the whole prayer. And it like just transformed the feeling in the room because yeah. everyone felt seen, everyone felt welcomed, everyone felt valued, which was the whole ballgame, right? And so I think you're right. Like, like your instinct was absolutely right. Like you say hello, but you say it in a way which is not just uh, courtesy. It actually right. expresses actual welcoming greeting. Right. Okay. Should I recap? Yeah, please recap. Three, two, one, go. So Harry is getting used to the castle and he's like, the stairways move and the portraits aren't where they say they're going to be and the suits of armor can move. And then he has all these classes and Flitwick is short and McGonagall is stern and Hermione Granger is already the best in the class. And they go and visit Hagrid for tea and that's really fun and cute, although Hagrid keeps some secrets. And then they go to Snape's class and Snape is immediately abusive and horrible, specifically to Neville Longbottom and to Harry. And... It's very upsetting. That's it. That's it. That's pretty much it. This is a chapter where there's a lot of like reflection on things and listing of new teachers and so forth. But okay. Bins. I didn't talk about bins. I know. I have opinions. I think we have some curricular questions we want to talk about. (laughs) Okay. I'm excited. Okay. Are you ready? No. Okay. Perfect. On your mark, get set, go. So Harry is walking around and everyone's staring at him and looking at his star, his scar, and he feels totally isolated and it doesn't get any better when he goes to classes because he feels out of his depth. And some classes are better, better than others, but even McGonagall is very stern and very uh, hard and harsh. And then they go to Snape's not class and Snape is more than stern and harsh and hard. He's actually cruel, not just to Harry, but to others in order to be cruel to Harry. He actually like does harmful things to others in order to get to Harry, which is bad. And then they go to Hagrid's and they find out that Hagrid's hiding something thing about the theft at Gringotts. That was pretty good. That was pretty good, but I didn't even mention Fang once, which is, I've neither of us mentioned Fang. I feel like that is way off brand for us because we love our dogs. That's true. We do love our dogs. So one of the things I was thinking about with belonging was just sort of the irony here that Harry absolutely belongs in one sense. He is clearly a wizard. His wizardness is confirmed by everyone staring at him as he walks around. Like, he's the wizard that defeated Voldemort. He's more wizard than wizard, right? Like, everyone there knows him. They know his scar. But how he could not feel less like he belongs at the beginning because they're all staring at him. He doesn't feel like one of them. He doesn't feel like he's part of the community. He feels stared at and set apart. So this is building on this thing that I kind of started into it in my own story and in this chapter about, you know, belonging being about a lot more than just sharing an identity because he He's pretty sure he shares an identity with them, but he doesn't, not sure he shares the skills, certainly doesn't share like the family history, or at least the knowledge of his own family history. And he just feels really isolated. He doesn't feel like he belongs, even though he is absolutely and undeniably a wizard. I remember in middle school, somebody talking to me who I thought was popular. And I was like, no, but you're a social rung above me. And I feel like she was being kind to me. And because I categorized her as different from me, I feel like I was rude. I was like, we don't belong to each other when she was trying to say the opposite. We did eventually become friends. But yeah, I think that everybody's categorizing Harry as different, as special. And that does. It makes the hurdle to him belong harder. It's a higher hurdle to jump, which 
I know this is out of order, but it just gets validated by Snape entirely, except that I think that Snape actually undermines himself because by being cruel to Harry, I think everyone in the class is going to start to be like, oh, I hate Snape too. And he's actually creating a sense of bonding for Harry. Seamus Finnegan like winks at Harry and Neville now feels like you and I are both bullied by Snape. And so I feel like Snape is trying to separate Harry and actually undermines his own attempts by creating some solidarity. The solidarity of abuse, but like still some solidarity. I think that's true. But he also undermines his own intention in a different way, which is like he's trying to single out Harry as not special. Like, you're not special. You don't know what these herbs do. Like, you're just an average wizard at best. But he's not doing this to everybody else. He's doing it just to Harry. So, like, his actions are, like, confirming to everyone in the room who's already setting Harry apart that Harry is set apart. Which is which is so sad about it. I mean, we're happy for Harry because he's where he belongs. But this is the experience he's had his whole life. Like, in that cupboard under the, under the stairs. He's never quite belonged. He's never felt like this is where I'm meant to be. Now he's finally where he is meant to be. And he's still set apart and isolated and like when does he get to be just at home and comfortable we learn by the end of the chapter which is i mean obviously hagrid's hot right but we see this going on i mean this confirmed throughout the chapter and also in other ways too like i think it's interesting with you look at a character like hermione who is like obviously well studied and over prepared for every single class and I don't know, maybe I'm projecting my own perfectionism onto Hermione, which is not fair, but I think about the times when I have done that, especially in an academic context. It's usually because I don't want to stand out as ill-prepared or even to connecting to my story back with which I began this episode. My mom, who is Japanese, put a lot of pressure on me to do well in school because she always told me, like, you cannot stand out. I, you are different from everybody else. You have to be good. You have to, right? But what happened is I ended up standing out because, like Hermione, like, I was more prepared than everybody else. I was more anxious to be prepared than everybody else. Like, I remember teachers and students talking about how Asian kids study more than other kids, right? <laughs> like, even this anxiety to fit in because no one else is anxious to fit in makes it harder for you to, to fit in. The thing I will say, she's overprepared, but she also seems talented to me because transfiguration is something that you can't necessarily prepare for. It doesn't seem right. Like, I don't quite know the magic of transfiguration. So maybe there is some like studied up theory that you also need. But we don't see her raising her hand and like aggressively knowing things. And yet she is able to turn her match into a silver match, like the closest to a needle of anybody else. And I don't know. I'm just also so proud of her. (laughs) I think you're right. I mean, Hermione obviously is just a a talented witch just in her blood or her bones or whatever, right? It's just, it's inside her somehow. And her study is bearing especially good fruit because she also has this internal talent. But that kind of returns me to this idea that really belonging is about like how much people are willing to welcome you. There's always a reason that that somebody can set you apart. I'm thinking about the popular girl at school who became your friend. I feel like the popular kids, they can decide whether to include you for any reason they want or to exclude you for any reason they want. That's just the privilege of being the one who determines who who is welcomed. And like, you could imagine if Hermione was from a wizarding family that everybody knew about and she showed up talented, like everyone would be like, oh great, isn't Hermione so great, right? It's because like nobody knows her family, nobody knows who she is, that this thing that might read as something we'd welcome given other social circumstances in this social circumstance becomes the reason to set her apart as the nerdy one who's overprepared or whatever. So it really, it's not about like what you do. It's about whether people choose to welcome you. 
Yeah. If you had been, do you feel as though if you had been a Dutch blonde kid and had been the most prepared in class, you would have stood out less? People would have celebrated it rather than making it like a racist excuse to resent you. Yeah, I think it would have looked different for sure, right? I think it would have looked different. I mean, I'm sure that's not to say that white kids weren't also called nerds in my school, right? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) But probably the teacher wouldn't have been telling the class about how Asian kids like Matt study hard because they're worried about what college they'll get into, right? They said that? A teacher said that to you? I got a bad grade on a test in fifth grade math, and I was upset. And my friend Brock asked the teacher, like, why is Matt so upset? And the teacher was like, well, you see, Brock, Asian kids think that if they do bad on a test, they won't get into college. So they get upset when they don't do well. And I was like, I'm not thinking about college. I got to show this grade to my mom. Like, well, <laughs> that's what I was thinking. I mean, in his defense, I was thinking about college as a 10 year old. <laughs> I definitely had college plans. In the immediate instance, I was like, it was not, am I not going to get into college? It was, I have to take this home. <laughs> yeah. And Hermione is probably already thinking about her career. She's like, oh, my God, if I can't turn this into a needle, how will I ever be Minister of Magic? Exactly. Makes sense to me. Yeah, totally. I follow that logic. Can we spend some more time talking about Hagrid's hut? Please. Okay. So I think that there's so many different kinds of belonging happening in this hut. First of all, I love that Ron immediately is like, can I come too? Because I feel like Ron and Harry just belong to each other. And so I love your definition of welcoming or kindness being a definition of belonging, but I also think vulnerability is part of belonging because Harry could say no, right? Harry could be like, sorry, this is my special time with Hagrid or legitimately like your name wasn't on the invitation. (laughs) It might be rude if I show up with an extra person. He could give any number of excuses for Ron not to come. And I feel like that risk also creates a sense of belonging. It's basically asking like, I feel entitled that you belong to me, but do I belong to you? Yeah, absolutely. Like, and I think welcome itself is an act of vulnerability, right? Like, because people can reject your greeting. People can reject your hospitality. You make yourself vulnerable by inviting somebody in. Imagine if that Zen priest was like, good morning. And you were like, no. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And so, yeah, so there's absolutely that with Ron asking. I feel like since the train, they have this bond. But even in this first week of school, going through all these classes, having very different experiences of what it's like to be first-year students at Hogwarts, obviously, and this stuff will bear out in future books, there still is a sense that even though we're different, even though we're experiencing this differently, like, we belong to each other. Like, we're there for each other. And what's mine is yours, what's yours is mine, and to some degree. So an invitation to Harry, it's okay for Ron to ask because he feels like he trusts it. And But there's also something about, I think, Harry knowing that Hagrid is the kind of person who, of course, would welcome another first-year who would be glad to see a Weasley show up at his door. So Hagrid's sense of like just kind of openness and welcome and kindness is such that it only brought Harry because Harry knows that Hagrid's the kind of person that would, of course, be cool with Ron showing up as well. Something that I find interesting about people who belong to each other across generations when there isn't necessarily like a parental or like formal relationship to it is that you can entirely belong to each other, and yet there are different boundaries. There are things that Hagrid can't tell Harry. He can't tell Harry what he got out of the Gringotts vault. He can't tell Harry who he thinks tried to rob Gringotts. But Ron and Harry can tell each other everything. And I think that there's something beautiful about this sense of, like, if Harry is feeling sad, he can run to Hagrid and just 
absolutely fall apart against Hagrid's chest. There's some more caretaking across generations, but there's also more boundaries. And I'm just wondering what you think about that. That leads me to think about different forms of belonging or what we mean by belonging, right? Or what it means when we belong to each other. We've been thinking about belonging in the, you know, the gerund form, the ing form. But like all kinds of things I could say belong to me. This book that I'm holding in my hand right now belongs to me. There's a sense of possession in that, which of course we should feel very uncomfortable projecting on other human beings. The idea of possessing another human being in this, like, as you would possess an object, objectifies a person in a way which is obviously immoral and awful and part of our history in this country and one that we're still reckoning with, obviously. And so the way we want to think about belonging between humans can't be about possession. It has to be about allowing the other to be other. It has to be about allowing the other to be free. And that means there have to be boundaries in between, right? That like what what belongs to you and what belongs to me are going to be different if we belong to each other, right? Which gets it really complicated. But that means that every relationship's different. So the way I think about, you know, how I belong to my children or my my wife and how she belongs to me or they belong to me or whatever, like those also have boundaries and also could become subject to like harmful forms of possessiveness or whatever. And we see this in human lives and relationships. But the way we're talking about belonging, I think, in this chapter, or the way we see it manifesting in Hagrid's hut is a kind of belonging which allows for otherness and freedom across difference. So that what it means to belong to each other is not that I own you or you own me. It's that we are for each other in a way that is for you as you are, not as I will make you or as I want you to be or something. And that needs boundaries. That means that there are some things that are mine and some things that are yours and that they don't have to be shared. They can be different. And I think Hagrid also does that brilliantly when he notices that Ron is a Weasley. I can imagine Ron, as soon as Hagrid's like, oh, another Weasley, I can imagine Ron being like, eh. But then he doesn't treat all Weasleys the same, right? He's like, Fred and George, I spent half my life chasing them out of the forest. And then he's like, but I really love Charlie. He was so good with animals. And I remember something specific about him. And how is he doing? And what is he up to? Which I feel like leaves room for Ron to be his own person rather than just a Weasley. He's like, I know your brothers is different people, and so tell me about you. And I feel like there's this pride in that moment because Hagrid loves some of his brothers of like, oh, I'm a Weasley too, rather than being something that he's annoyed by of like being the sixth Weasley. He's like, no, 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 I'm a Weasley. And the thing that I think is so remarkable about all of the ways that Hagrid is welcoming and having the kids belong to him is that Hagrid is very isolated. He is in this hut by himself. He's not a teacher. He's not even like a sort of, I don't know, certified or legal wizard. He is marginalized in so many ways by doing the vulnerable thing and welcoming others. He's also sort of asking to be welcomed into their lives. And I love, right, like there are studies about how when you're depressed and feeling isolated, the best thing to do is to volunteer and to like offer to help others. And I feel like it's just such a beautiful like reaching out that ends up rewarding Hagrid, right? He makes two great friends in this moment and like eventually gets Hermione out of the mix from this invitation. And Hermione is going to come and like help him defend Buckbeak by reaching out to others we also find our own belonging. Haggard's so good. I love him so much. I mean, you think about all the ways he's marginalized, right? He can't use his wand. He's half giant. He's different in every way, 
which could give rise to the kind of like defensiveness and spitefulness and cruelty that we see in other characters in this chapter, for example, right? He has all the kind of circumstances of isolation in his life, which would lead him to turn further inward and to not trust others. And instead, like he so consistently turns outward towards making himself more vulnerable to children and animals, especially, which... Again, if you're going to turn outward to anybody, turn outward to children and animals because because they need it. And also they're likely to return it in a generous way. So, yeah, like Hagrid is so good and and is so willing to be vulnerable and does also find his own belonging in these new friends of his. There's such a dramatic foil to someone like Snape, who's on the faculty, who's clearly a wizard, who has been at the threshold of power, both for the Dark Lord and for Dumbledore. Like he is on the inside of whichever system of power you want to name. And he is so insecure and so isolated, self-isolating, so unwilling to turn outward by refusing to welcome. He isolates himself further, which is the kind of the sad irony of his behavior in this chapter. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. The other thing about Snape is that even the way he treats the Slytherins, it doesn't help his belonging because it's so obviously biased based on something that they can't help. It's not like I'm acknowledging the humanity within you. It's like I'm blindly loyal to this idea of Slytherin House. And no matter who you are, no matter what that means, I am going not to even love you, but to favor you. It's about favoritism and bias and not about love, right? Like Draco does not feel loved and welcomed by Snape. He just feels preferred. 
Right. This is belonging, which is based purely on just an identity, a shared identity, which is Slytherin, right? Like Snape in his favoritism towards Slytherins, it might feel like belonging to them. You could even hear Ron and Harry saying it, wish McGonagall would favor us as well. It feels like belonging to them. And maybe it is a certain kind of belonging, but it's not the kind that actually edifies and builds people up. We know because look what will happen to Malfoy later, right? Like his loyalty or his identity as a Slytherin is actually what leads him to moral and mortal danger later on in his life as a child. The other place where I see this complicated idea of whether identity creates a sense of belonging is the way that the castle makes itself hard to be known. I can imagine myself being like, got it. Transfiguration is by the portrait of the old witch sitting on the pumpkin and then trying to find class based on that and being like, where's the portrait? Because the old witch is visiting another portrait. Imagine choosing your parking space and trying to remember that it's D3 and then coming back and like the D isn't there. You're like, what the heck? And I love that about Hogwarts, that eventually you feel a sense of belonging. But it also creates a sense of like outsidership. I'm just thinking about like when the Bobaton and Durbinstrang kids arrive. They're already in a new country with a new language and they're already guests. And then also there are all of these prohibitive things about the castle. I don't know. It's just so funny how the same place can make you feel certain ways. Going to temple growing up, I used to hate that the whole service was in Hebrew and I understood none of what was happening. And yet I was in France once And I felt so isolated and I was in a small town and it turns out that there was a synagogue and that it was Shabbat services. And I walked in and it it wasn't in French, it was in Hebrew. And so it was in a language that sounded the same. I still didn't understand it, but it sounded the same as it did in Los Angeles. And so that thing that made me feel like I didn't belong in LA made me feel like I did belong in Avignon. Yeah, I remember the first time I went to a Christian church in Japan, the service was in Japanese, but I could just, I knew the order of the service. I could like follow along and that felt like a, felt like a comfort also. So I think this is right about Hogwarts and the staircases and sort of creating an outsider status. But what I also like about it, and I think we see this in the chapter as well, when Harry realizes that even the first years who come from wizarding families are kind of at a loss also, like kind of reeling just like him. And that makes him feel more at home. I mean, there's also a sense in which even like the fifth years or sixth years, they don't know like where which staircase they're going to take today either, right? It's what it means to be at home in Hogwarts is not to have all the answers and know where everything is, is to have acquired a certain kind of comfort with not knowing. With today's going to be an adventure, who knows where the staircase is going to be, and that's okay. Which again is a counterpoint to the environment out of which Harry comes, the kind of Dursley muggle worldview, which is like, everything is knowable and we know it and we don't want to not know anything. Here, Hogwarts, the training really is in like, okay, let's all get comfortable with mystery. Let's all get comfortable with being uncomfortable with the day and the situation that that's in front of you. And there is something interesting and good about that too, or or at least especially uh, witching and wizarding about it. So 
Matt, we're going to do Havruta, and it is my turn to ask a question. My question today is about pedagogy at Hogwarts, because I feel like we, we get taken on this tour of all the different teaching methods at Hogwarts. And I said earlier that I love McGonagall's sort of like firmness and structure. And the most structured class at Hogwarts is arguably Professor Binz's class, where he just stands up there and lectures. And yet that is so ineffective. They aren't even following him. I'm wondering what it is that makes it so ineffective that when you just stand up there and lecture, to some extent, that's what you're paying for when you go to school, right? That's why you're there. There's an expert in the room. You want to hear everything they have to say. They can share their expertise with you. I always hated like student work. I'm like, I don't care what you have to say, kid who's my age. What do you know? And yet we know this is just like such bad pedagogy. And I'm wondering why it is that Binz is so bad at this or what it is about Binz's lecturing that makes him so bad. And my answer is that he doesn't even seem to know who's in the room. Kids come in, kids come out, and there's no like a blessing for you, Harry, a blessing for you, Ron, right? Like there's just no individuality to it. And so I would even say that like, Snape is more abusive, but I feel like you learn more in Snape's class. So like, I would just argue that like Binz is actually the most ineffective teacher and it's because there's just no individuality in the class. I think you're onto something with your answer. I think my answer might be slightly different, um, and I, but I think the, co- the comparison to Snape is exactly where to begin. I, I think I'm concerned about the curriculum at, at Hogwarts. I think it might not be an accident that the wizarding world is inclined toward fascism because I think that maybe the way they teach is not suitably informed by critical thought and liberal education, right? And liberal education in the classic sense, like we need to learn what it means to think. We need to ask questions, right? Most of these classes are almost like practical application classes, right? It's almost more like magic vocational school. Learn this skill. Like, and if you acquire this skill, and there's talent involved with like, like with transfiguration, and I don't pretend to be an expert on what is involved with these things, but most, it seems like skill acquisition. One of the few places where you have the chance for critical thought is history of magic. And instead of Ben saying to the classroom, here is why history is important so that we can understand how to use these powers. What is it? What does it mean to use these powers rightly and justly? How have they been misused in the past? Binz treats history of magic as if it's a vocational class, a skills class. Learning history is about knowing facts. So I'm going to list the facts to you. That's boring and no one cares. Snape, meanwhile, in what is effectively a skills class where you learn to make potions and brew things correctly and in the right order, says, I can teach you how to bottle fame, brew glory, and even stop her death. He's saying that these, like, these skills have consequences in the world. This is what education is about. Like anybody can read a history book, understanding why the history matters, what it means for who we are, what it means for who we want to become. That's where the education part happens, right? And that's why Binz's class is so boring because he doesn't say that to him. And when I was in college, my first humanities teacher said like he was kind of justifying the humanities to us. And he was just kind of like, you know, whether or not we understand why chemicals bond to each other, they're going to do it. And we have to have that skill. We need doctors to figure that stuff out so we can take the right drugs to, to cure us of maladies and care for each other, right? But he said the real question, the important question is how do we use this power once we have it? How do we think about what it means to have these kinds of powers? And the, it seems to me that none of the, very few of the professors at Hogwarts are asking those sorts of questions in their classrooms. And the one class where it should be 
on the first page, Binz's class, History of Magic, is the place where they don't seem to ask it at all. He just stands up and reads a list of facts. Yeah, and I think that our answers go hand in hand. I think that if you see the individuality of students, you want to make them understand why this matters. I don't just want you to know facts. I want you to know why I care about it. Mr. Svek, my 10th grade math teacher, he really, I mean, it was the 90s, but like he saw me as a girl and therefore someone who was not going to pursue math. And when I asked him a why question, he was like, don't worry about it, Vanessa. Just memorize it. You're not going to need calculus. Like you're not going to need the conclusion of this. And then I remember like three days later, a dude asked a why question and he answered it. And so I feel like if you don't see people's humanity, you don't feel compelled to share more than the facts. So I would just say that we weren't disagreeing, Matt. You're right. We weren't. I agree that we were not disagreeing. So really, we're just agreeing all the way around. So I have a question for you, Vanessa, which is, again, about pedagogy at Hogwarts. So my question is with McGonagall. So McGonagall comes in the classroom and then turns a desk into a pig and then back into a desk and then flips it to the students and says, okay, this is hard. Transfiguration is hard. And so we are going to start slow. You have a matchstick. You'll turn into a pin. What I want to ask is, is McGonagall maybe doing some of what I called for in my answer to your question, that she's actually showing the stakes, showing why this skill is important and what the kind of implications in the world are. She's saying what you're going to do in the next hour is work with a matchstick and a pin. But you can see from what I just showed you that the power of transfiguration is a great power. And that's why we're going to go slow. That's why we're going to do the boring you know, follow the boring details. Do you think that that McGonagall is showing a kind of morally informed pedagogy? I think my answer is yes. I wish she had done something with more consequence to it. When are you ever going to need to turn anything into a pig? I mean, like, pigs are great. And like, maybe I want my nightstand to be a pig and then to like snuggle with a pig for the night. Like, I wish she had changed something into something practical, like it's dark in the classroom, so she changes her desk into a light and then, like, turns the light on. I agree that she's showing that this has great power. I just don't think she's doing this thing that you said was helpful, which is showing how it'll change their lives. Unless they want a bunch of pigs, I don't see why this... It's just, like, such a weird flex. To me, the outlandishness of it is the point, which is that, like, you will have the power to do anything to anything. Right. Like that's why it's powerful. Right. Like, so if you want a pig, if, for example, you wanted a pig to snuggle with through the night, <laughs> then you could do that. If you didn't want that, then you could do something else. Not that anybody wouldn't want that. But if there was something else someone wanted. <laughs> yeah, I think I mean, like, I love absurdity. And so I would certainly be very excited being in that classroom, being like, what? A pig? What? It's gone. I think that one of the hardest parts about teaching middle school and high school is the, the question that almost every child asks, which is, why is this important for me to know in my real life? And I was like such a jerk about this when I was a teacher. It was like, why does it matter if I turn this in on time? And I'm like, because one day you're going to have to turn your taxes in on time. And if you don't, you're going to get penalized. And so I want to teach you that. I want to teach you that it matters. And it like doesn't. You can file an extension for your taxes and right. Like, and I should have been nicer about kids turning things in late. But 
I feel like that's the mistake that McGonagall is making. I think that teaching kids stakes and why their education matters is so important. And I feel like she's doing the taxes thing. She's making the wrong argument about why it's so important. I, that's fair. I, you're right. I think that's right. I think that she's starting to gesture towards it. So once again, even though it sounds like we're disagreeing, we're actually agreeing. Like, I think that this move starts to gesture towards a more robust kind of critical pedagogy, but she needs to do more because I think what I want a good curriculum to teach students is that thinking is hard work, but it's super important. And if you turn away from hard work because it's hard, you will not do the really important stuff. You might still acquire some skills that allow you to do accomplished things in the world, but the really hard stuff is trying to figure out when and how one should do things in the world, right? And and we could just kind of transfer or replace the word thinking with magic. Magic is hard and it's hard work. And it, we need to train people who are willing to do the hard work, not just of acquiring the skills, but also the hard work of realizing how powerful these skills are and learning what it means to use them kind of mercifully and justly and all those things, right? And I think you're right. That's this not fully realized on day one of transfiguration for the first years in McGonagall's class. The, the irony is like, the only person who says it explicitly is Snape, who says, this is the power you are going to have. And so if you want to learn something about how to use that power, pay attention because it's hard and there will be consequences if you do things wrong. Look at Seamus Finnegan's cauldron. What he doesn't say is like, what does it mean to have that kind of power? What does it mean to have the power to stop her death? How do you use that? That's, the, that's what he, I also want him to say. And that's what I want Bins to be talking about. Like, Bins can be talking about all the wizards in the past who have acquired the power to stop her death and have and has, have led to, like, incredible violence and pain and destruction, right? Like, that's where something like history becomes so important. Or incredible courage, right? Oh, yes, absolutely. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Now is the time in our show when we remember the names of those in our community who have been lost to COVID-19. Uncle Alan, aged 82, was an uncle, a horse trainer, loud and funny. Honey Rosen, 83, a family matriarch and a passionate dancer. Terry Beitzel, 53, a peace scholar, husband, father, and friend. Andy Giuliano, 73, a lover of life and a mentor. Devin Hurd. And Robert Johnston, 48, a father, a husband, and a sports enthusiast. Let light perpetual shine upon them. Before we listen to today's voicemail, I just want to say we're really excited to get voicemails from you. What we're looking for this season is voicemails where you are offering blessings for characters and really any character across the seven books. And so please send us two-minute blessings for any character at hpsacredtext at notsorryproductions.com. And this week's voicemail is a beautiful example of that and is from Katya. Hi, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text team. This is Katya from Northern California. I recently finished the episode where, during the bloopers, Vanessa and Casper joked about why Harry in Book 7 doesn't just draw a picture of Dumbledore to talk to, and it reminded me of a blessing I have wanted to give for a long time. In Book 3, after Sirius has slashed his way through the portrait of the fat lady and into Gryffindor Tower, Dumbledore says, I'll have Filch restore her. We are often told that Filch is a squib with no magical abilities, but this line makes me believe that isn't totally true. In the non-magical world, art restoration is a complex process involving a deep understanding and talent for chemistry, art history, and fine art, with an incredibly steady hand and eye for seeing things others might miss but it also involves a distinct lack of ego because your entire job is to make it look like you did nothing, like the painting is exactly as the original artist intended. Later, we are told that the portrait of the fat lady has been expertly restored, meaning that Filch completes a severely damaged and complex restoration quickly and flawlessly. While I can debate with myself if the Filch we are shown has the qualities I described. This reading has given me a new way of looking at him, as an artist, a restorer and caretaker and mender. So I want to offer a blessing to Filch and to all artists and to squibs, people whose magic is different or small or invisible to others. There is magic in who you are and what you create, even if others don't see it yet. Thanks. 
Matt and I talked recently off mic about how there seemed to be like levels of magic, right? And that Neville was just magic enough to get into Hogwarts. And I think it's entirely possible that people like qualify as squibs sort of too easily. And therefore, like the magic within them doesn't get like brought out. Carol Dweck has a book called Mindset and it's about a fixed mindset versus a growth mindset and how it's the responsibility of teachers to always have a growth mindset on behalf of their students that they can all grow. And I feel like by labeling someone a squib, you're essentially saying they can't grow. And I think you're exactly right. Filch has this magic, right? Certainly this restoration magic. Yeah, Katya, I love this voicemail too. I was I was just so happy listening to it. And I think it's so true. I mean, this idea that what counts as magic is what counts as magic, right? We decided that a particular set of skills are the ones that we are going to name magical within the wizarding world. But I mean, what is more miraculous than creating a painting or restoring a painting? What is more miraculous and rare than composing a piece of music or performing it really beautifully? I mean, these are skills that as we talked about in this episode, require patience and dedication and attention over years and are just as rare and and seemingly impossible as turning a dust into a pig, right? And so why wouldn't we call those things magic? And why would we consign an identity of squib to someone whose magic is so obvious and apparent? If that is what 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 Filch is doing. And I think Boy, I think your reading is really close and it sounds really right. Like he's the one that restored this painting. So he's the one with a skill, which means there is a magic that dwells even in Argus Filch. So Matt, it's now time for you to offer a blessing. So who would you like to bless? I would like to bless Fang this week because Fang is so sweet and so loving. And Fang exemplifies everything that it ought to mean to make others feel like they belong and to welcome them. And I'll just dovetail off of yours, which is that Hagrid is such a good handler of Fang. I feel like he holds Fang back and is like, Fang, hold on, and is in that moment assessing if Harry and Ron are people who are afraid of dogs, which I feel like is the responsibility of a dog owner to be like, how are you going to respond to my dog? And then once it's clear that the boys are fine with Fang, let Fang loose to lick their faces. But I also love, like, Hagrid's just so good at this. He's just like, wait, let me look at you. Are you okay with this big boar hound jumping on you? Yes, you are. Okay, come in. So, Vanessa, next week we are reading Chapter 9, The Midnight Duel. Let me ask you, what should our theme be? Can it be, like, meanness? <laughs> I mean, I think it, it, it's not a great word, but I feel like all the other words that we might use, like cruelty or spitefulness, are either too much or too little so maybe meanness is the word we had maybe this is a maybe this is a good sign that we need to talk about meanness more because we need to calibrate it correctly oh i love the idea that what we are doing is calibrating words this podcast has become real nerdy You've been listening to the Very Nerdy Podcast, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and you can find listeners who are discussing the episode in the Facebook common room. Please join our local groups. They're starting to meet in person again. And join the community of people who are supporting us on Patreon. You get a bonus conversation with me and Matt every week, and we are so charming. You can leave us a review on iTunes and send us a voicemail with a blessing. We want to thank Katya for her blessing this week. 
And we are a Not Sorry production, executive produced by the great and good Ariana Nettleman, edited by Juliana Bradley. Our engineer is Erica Wong. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are distributed by Acast. Thanks once again to Katya, who sent us such a wonderful voicemail this week. Thanks also to Molly Baxter, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Casper Takayle, Stephanie Paulsell, and to all of you who sent in the names of your loved ones who have been lost to COVID. The Potions Master. There, look. Where? Next to the call. Okay, everyone. There, look. Where? Next to the call. I can't talk today. Isn't that sad for me? It's okay. I'm just working on the blooper reel.